Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today I'm really excited to have with us Carol Cook, AM. Carol is a, an Australian paracyclist who has won multiple world championships. She's also won gold in Rio. Uh, or two lots of gold in Rio and a silver medal in Tokyo. And she's also an author, so she's a busy, busy woman. So welcome to the podcast, Carol. Thanks, Liz. It's great to be here. No, it's really good to have you, and I'm really interested to hear about your experience. So can you start us off with telling us about your background, your impairment, and what events you race in? Yeah, sure. Look, I've always been involved in sport, even from like the age of four. And at 10, I started swimming. By 15, my goal was the 1980 Olympics. And unfortunately, Canada, as I was born and bred in Canada, decided to boycott the 1980 Games along with a lot of the Western world. And so I thought that dream had died, but I I was so involved with sport, I just kept swimming and I swim. I, I swam right up until a few years ago as a master swimmer. And then I moved down to Australia. Mm. I married an Aussie. And in 1998... I had some unusual symptoms. I was extremely tired, lethargic. I couldn't, I found it really hard to get out of bed and my balance started to go. And so I would be walking down the hall of our our house. It's an old Victorian terrace and I'd literally be bouncing off the walls. And my doctor thought I had an inner ear infection, which made sense because I was a swimmer. And then I, my eyesight started to go funny. Um, I was having double vision and my eyes felt like they were shaking side to side. So I went to just a local optometrist and she had just graduated from university. And after a whole bunch of tests, she said to me, look, maybe this infection is spread to the optic nerve. Can I have your doctor's number? And she called him and she said to him, look, Carol's got optic neuritis. And she said, that's a precursor to multiple mm. sclerosis. So maybe send her to a neurologist and get some testing done. So mm-hmm. he found, I guess, the, the only neurologist available in a, in a really quick period of time. And he sent me to see him. He sent me for uh, an MRI and CAT scan, a whole bunch of stuff. And it was funny because the day I was going back, which was the 23rd of, I remember the date, the 23rd of April, 1998. I was going back to get the results and all my symptoms had disappeared and I felt like a real fraud. (laughs) And I thought, oh, geez, I'm wasting this guy's time. And as I got into his waiting in his waiting room and he opened the door and he, he very gruffly said, come in here, Carol, come in. And I thought, oh yeah, I am wasting this time. He's going to be saying, you know, what the hell have you put me through? And anyway, I walked in and he pointed to an armchair. He gruffly said, sit down. And he pulled out the MRI film and he held it to the ceiling light and he didn't even look at me. He just looked at it and he said, well, there's too many lesions on your brain for someone your age. So basically he says, you know, you've got multiple sclerosis and basically your life as you know, Mm. it's over. So I'd suggest you go home and put your affairs in order before you become incapacitated. And I, I felt like I'd been hit by a bus and I, and I went on my own because oh my all the God. symptoms were gone. And I just mm-hmm. kind of sat there and I said one word that whole appointment. I just looked at him and I said, what? And I guess the one thing that was going through my head, it wasn't even the fact that he said I had lesions on my brain. It was incapacitated. And I've 
you know, been so involved in sport, I'm thinking incapacitated. And I went to the real dark side of that, like, you know, lying in a bed, unable to feed myself, speak, um, dress myself, toilet myself. Like I went way the wrong side. And he just shook his head and he said, oh God, you heard me, you've got MS. And he said, this silly sports stuff you do, you're never going to do that again. He says, you're going to have to quit work and there's a bunch of drugs you, you're going to have to go on. But you know what? He says, you'll have to go back to your own GP because I really don't have time for you as a patient. I got enough people with MS to deal with. And with that, he just put the film back in the envelope and walked to the door. And I was still sitting in the chair oh. thinking, what the hell? And yeah. and he opened the door and he said, hurry up. I've got people waiting. And as I walked towards him, he slammed the envelope into my chest and he had the audacity to say, see my secretary on the way out for your bill. And I remember I must have looked like hell because I walked out and I remember people looking at me very strangely. And I walked down the hall towards the front door and right past the secretary's office. And I could hear her as I put my hand on the door to walk out the front, Mrs. Cook, your bill. And I just walked out. And that's the last thing I actually remember till I got home. I don't even remember parking my car at home or opening the door, but I remember sitting on the couch and I was in tears and my six month old puppy jumped up and sat on my lap and started to whimper. And that kind of snapped me out of it. I'm really lucky though that, you know, my husband, he called and he said, tell me what, you know, what the doctor say? I said, I'm not going to talk about this over the phone because I, you know, he said I'd be incapacitated and never do anything anymore. And so even though I'd heard of MS because of the readathon, funny enough, the readathon was started in Canada by my grade seven librarian. And so I knew about it. I'd participated in it, but I had no idea what MS was. And Russ came home, my husband, and I told him that I'd made some decisions that, you know, I was going to give him a divorce and give him the house we had just bought and go home to Canada so my family could look after me because he's 10 years older than me. And I kept thinking how, you know, I was 36 at the time. He was 40. He had just turned 47. And I was thinking, how is this going to work later in life? You know, how is he going to look after me? And he just looked at me and he's a really good Bush boy, Aussie Bush boy. And he just called me an effing idiot. <laughs> and I said, haven't you heard what this doctor said? He goes, well, he's a bigger one. He said, we know nothing about this. Let's find out first before we make some any rash decisions, which is so right. And so I'm lucky I have a great GP. He got me in touch with the MS Society. And, and so I learned that, you know, I could still do everything I wanted to do, maybe just do things a bit differently. And so I kept swimming even to the point where in 2001, my MS had progressed to the point where I was using a wheelchair full time. I had gotten pretty heavy because I wasn't doing as much as I had done in the past. And I was still working full time. And finally, after re relapse after relapse, my new neurologist, not the one that had told me of was life was over. <laughs> um, and he said, look, you know, you can keep going this way. He said, but I think, you know, if you really think about it, maybe give up work and start concentrating on you for a change. And so he was so right. And it was a big decision. You know, I'd never been unemployed. I'd been a police officer in Canada. I was now climbing the corporate ladder at Australia Post. And I thought, yeah, I, I just can't do this anymore. And it's probably the best thing I'd ever done was give up work and concentrate on me. And I was able 
with, with the help of a bit of medical intervention, I got out of the wheelchair. I kept exercising because I found that exercise was the best thing for it. And it was funny because I was still swimming as a master swimmer. And in 2005, for the first time ever, they had para classifications at the World Masters Games for swimming and athletics. So I actually went and got classified as a para swimmer. And I did really well at the games. And Paralympics Australia had heard about me thinking, because master swimming starts at the age of 25. So I guess they were thinking I was younger than I actually was. And it was Tim Matthews who sent me an email inviting me to a talent search day. And at the time I was 45 and I was thinking, I think talent search days are for kids and young adults. So I sent him an email and said, I'm not a young child or even a young adult. Yeah, I'm sure you don't know my age, but I'm 45. Do you still want me to come? And he said, yeah, sure. And I remember the day walking in and all these parents were there with their kids and here was me. And I think they were wondering where my child was. And I'm like, oh, I'm here for the testing. I think I was 24 years older than the oldest other, the oldest person there. And I went through the testing and a couple of weeks later, I got a letter asking me to take up the sport of rowing because rowing was a new new sport in Beijing in 2008. And so I did. And I ended up making the national rowing team in 2008. And we attempted to yeah. qualify for Beijing and we missed out by 0.8 of a second. And uh, that was devastating because I thought, you know, this dream of representing my country at the highest pinnacle of sport that I had when I was a kid, I thought for sure was coming true. But I kept rowing for a number of years and we were having a lot of uh, issues with Rowing Australia at the time with the para group, more so the coach. He wasn't interested in, in the four, which I was part of. And so in 2011, one of the girls that I'd been rowing with from Sydney, she had switched to cycling at the end of 2010. And she said to me, Carol, they've got a trike category in paracycling. And I was really surprised because I'd had a trike made just so I could ride to, um, to training for rowing. And I said, really? She goes, yeah. She says, you could, you should come up and race at nationals. And I'm thinking, I've never raced a bike in my life, you know, other than doing some triathlons when I was younger. And so, yeah, my first race ever was the Australian parent cycling nationals up in Queensland. And I did the time trial. And I remember that day, Peter Day coming up to me And he said, where the hell did you come from? And I said, oh, Melbourne. He goes, no, I mean, in the (laughs) cycling world. I said, oh, no, I'm a rower. He goes, no, you're not. You're a cyclist. (laughs) And he says, we need to talk to your coach. And I said, well, keep talking because I'm my coach. I'm a rower. I've got a rowing coach if you want to talk to him. But, you know, and he just shook his head and he said, you just smashed the qualifying speed for the national team for your category. And I went, oh, really? What was that? And he said, don't you even know that? And I said, oh, I know nothing about cycling. So that was my introduction to the national team. And I guess my first worlds were in 2011. And it was funny because everybody kept saying to me, oh, you're the fastest T2 woman we've ever seen. And, you know, so I went to world champs in Denmark just thinking I was going to win. And unfortunately, there was a Canadian, Marie Eve, who was told the same thing. And 
she was the fastest in the world. So, but that was the start of my, uh, my cycling journey, I guess. And yeah, so I, I raced the, the road time trial and the road race and, um, been doing that since 2011. And, you know, it's, it's just been an incredible journey and to think I'm still racing at this age, cause I'm now, I'll be 61 in August. And it's funny cause I was, I was at the Victorian Institute of Sport yesterday in the gym and I was, I just finished my gym session and I, I do my gym session with a bunch of uh, sailors and they're all really young. Like I'm talking high school and first year university. So I was on, on the floor doing some stretching and I'm looking around and I'm thinking, oh my God, like I'm still here. And I don't think these guys even know how old I am. It's quite funny. So they keep me young. I think the team, the paracycling team in Australia, you know, I get roomed with, with, you know, young women who are in their early mid twenties. And so that keeps me young, but they don't look at me as anything other than a teammate, which is great. Not, you know, that yeah. there's that old lady that's still trying to do stuff, but look, cycling is keeping me walking. And, you know, it's, it's my yeah. social outlet and whether I'm on the team or not, I'll still keep cycling because I love it. So. And so your classification for cycling? Yes, it's WT2. Okay. So there's other classifications in the trike category? Yeah, there's only two classifications, T1 and T2. So T1 is more, have, have more of a disability. Okay. And what's the the number of athletes? Like you've been there for 11 years racing and and I assume that you know, the sport has evolved quite substantially over that time. What are some of the changes that you've seen and particularly within your category? Oh, yeah, it's it's in 11 years it's changed dramatically. You know, when I started we had probably four of us racing. So in London, we couldn't even have our own race. So we actually raced the men, the T1s and T2s um, were all combined, men and women, and factored. Then come Rio, we actually had enough to have our own race, the women. So they still combined the T1 and the T2 and factored that mm -hmm. in the time trial. But now, like we've now got, I think there's about... I was looking at the standings. There's about 12 women's T2 racing mm. worldwide who have got international rankings. I was just in Europe for two World Cups and a couple of the, the women, I well, Marie Eve, who is still racing, who I first raced that first year, but she wasn't there. She was having surgery. And there was another American who had some surgery. So there was only six of us that were actually racing at the world cup, but there were two new girls. Right. So it's, it's actually trikes have kind of become, I think kind of at the beginning, they were looked on as, oh, they're trikes, you know, they don't do much, but now it's more widely accepted to be riding a trike. And it's more, I've looked at all the teams around the world have become more professional. The countries are, are looking at their paracyclists as, as professional athletes, you know, we might not get paid as professional athletes, but we take it seriously. We're not, 
I think back at the beginning, it was paracycling and all parasport was really looked at all those poor disabled people, you know, they're giving it a go now. And I think with the emergence of the Paralympics being advertised and seen so widely around the world, I think people have realized that, hey, you know, these these athletes do just as much training and maybe even a bit more than the able-bodied athletes because of their disability. Mm-hmm. And so it's much mm-hmm. more widely accepted and looked upon as being real athletes and not a bunch of disabled people giving it a go, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what would a typical training week look like for you say at this time of the year so you've already raced a couple of world cups what would a typical training week look like in terms of the volume of time spent on the bike and also what you do in in other modalities yeah well i'm i'm in a build phase right now because i've got i think it's like eight and a half weeks till the next world cup and having now raced the new women i know what i have to work on so right now i'm doing roughly 250 kilometers of riding a week. Mm-hmm. Some of that's just, you know, go for a ride, but a lot of it are efforts. Like today I, I did sub-threshold stuff, so two 20 minutes with a bit of a sprint at the end of those 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I'll do strength efforts this week a couple times. So besides riding, I'm also – so that will be about 13 hours, I guess, of riding – and then I'm in the gym three times a week for just a, about an hour usually, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then I have have Sunday as a day of rest. <laughs> and, and my body loves me when I do that. So, yeah, I mean, that has, since I've got more experience um, over the years, I never would have at the beginning would have ridden, you know, 250 or plus kilometers. It was just about getting out and, and learning the skills. Now that I have the skills, I can actually... Mm-hmm get out there because riding a trike is completely different than riding two wheels. So the skills are really important. Mm -hmm. And so during one of those sessions during the week, at the end of the session, I actually still practice skills. You know, we have a big car park behind our house and when it's, it's great when it's empty because then I use the, the light poles and just do figure eights and, you know, practicing corners. And so it doesn't matter how long Mm -hmm. you've been riding, you still need to get those skills in. So that's included in that as well during the week. Yeah. Yeah. And how long, just as a reference point, how long does a time trial usually take you? Like what's the rough distance and, and the amount of time? And then for the road race, how long would that be? And roughly how long would, would that um, take you? Well, the time trial can, can vary in distance. It can go anything. I think in London, we did eight kilometers in the time trial, but we can race up to 20. And I think this year's world championships are about 18.8, something like that. And so depending on the terrain, you know, I'm looking at probably 34 minutes for a time trial. Uh, The road race is usually 30 kilometers. At least the rules say it should only be 30 kilometers, no more than 30. World championships this year are 38 point something. So we were kind of questioning that. The, the T2 men race up to 40 kilometers, and I'm happy to race longer. I would much prefer longer. As I get older, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd rather have the insurance rather than the sprint stuff. Yeah, so we're not quite sure if that was, you know, a typo. But, and again, depending on the train, that can take an hour or just over. The one in, in Germany just mm-hmm. this past month was 29 
about 29 and a half kilometers. And it took us like an hour and four minutes, something like that. So averaging almost 30 kilometers an hour. So, yeah. Yep. Okay. So it's, it's kind of in that window where you need good endurance capability, but you also really need the speed, the higher intensity capability, and also you need to be able to handle hills. So it's kind of, it, it puts demands on all aspects of your physiology, right? Oh, most definitely. And, you know, most of the girls are much lighter than me. So their hill climbing ability is just incredible. So, you know, every year I end up trying to get down to what we call race weight just before a race, because obviously the lighter I can be, the better for me to climb, but without losing <laughs> that, that power. And I'm much better. And I think hence in Belgium uh, at the first World Cup this year, why, you know, it's pretty flat, but it's also technical. And I actually won the time trial by, by a fair, fair margin, 42 seconds, but I'm better than the lighter girls in the wind on the flats. And obviously I have the, the technical skills that have been built up over the last 11 years, where some of the new ones, the newer, newer riders are having a hard time getting around corners and, and because they're lighter dealing with the wind. And just talk to us about that technical skill of getting around a, a corner. What makes it so hard with a trike? Well, a trike doesn't lean like a two-wheel bike. So if you're on a two-wheel bike, you lean the bike over to get around. Unfortunately, the trike has fixed wheelbase at the back. So when you're going around a corner, you actually have to use your body weight to get the trike to go around the corner. So we're on a two-wheel bike. Mm -hmm. You would have your, whichever way you're going, your inside knee up so that your pedal doesn't strike the ground as you lean the bike. On a trike, it's completely the opposite. You keep your inside leg down so that you can shift your body weight over top of that leg to actually get the trike around a corner. Similar to if you've ever seen somebody sidecar racing on a, or, or even the motorcycle racing, how they actually lean their body right off the vehicle to get it around. So it, mm -hmm. it does take time to actually learn and it takes time to know what line you should go in to take. It, it's quite funny because I had somebody who was uh, a rally car driver and, and he was also a triathlete. And so he did a lot of corner work with me and he said, when in doubt, stay out. And, and so that, that goes through my head. So the farther out you are from the corner and then you're looking to where you want to go, the quicker you're going to be. And it, it doesn't sound right because on a two-wheel bike, you'd just kind of be as close as you can to get zip around that corner. But because you can't lean the trike, what he said actually worked out really well. So that, that goes through my head every time I'm going around a corner. When in doubt, stay out. When in doubt, stay out. So yeah, the, the, just the, the way you have to get around needs a lot of practice. Yeah. Yeah. And what about your impairment itself? Is that, are you still progressively getting symptoms that are different or are the symptoms that you have progressively getting worse or does that get harder when you're more fatigued or like how does your impairment impact on on your training and and your racing great question yeah ms is a progressive disease and unfortunately usually after about 20 years you do get some progression where things get worse and and of course that's where i'm at now because it's been like 24 years and yeah, my balance, obviously 
is why I'm still on the trike because my balance is pretty bad. And the fatigue, I'm, I'm pretty good. If I wake up in the morning, I can tell, you learn to tell the difference between MS fatigue and just training fatigue because MS fatigue is so mm -hmm. all-encompassing and you feel like you just can't get out of bed, like you've got a ton of weight on you. So, you know, it's, it's easy to tell, okay, is, am I tired? Because I've just, I had a big week. And so if it's MS fatigue, then I, then I'm smart. I listen to my body and missing one session isn't going to kill me. I have progressed in the fact that I do have issues with my hands now. So hanging onto the handlebars can be an issue at times, mm -hmm. being able to feel the handlebars because I lose the feeling in my hands. And the other thing with MS is I'm heat intolerant. So the hotter it gets, the worse my symptoms mm -hmm. get. I think one of the, yep. one of the big things is I have neuro pain, which is 24 seven in my feet. And so the more I get tired or the more my core body temperature goes up, the worse it gets. And so having your feet, you know, encompassed in, in completely wrapped in cycling shoes, it's not the best thing to deal with neuro pain, but you just, you know, I just, you just yep. learn to live with it and get, get your shoes off as soon as you can, once you're done. And, you know, it's, it's such an unknown quantity MS and you just have no idea what's mm -hmm. going to happen in the future. So I just keep pushing through and, and learning to listen to my body and, and know that, yeah, it's okay. When I was younger, it was like, take a day off. No, you can't do that. Now I've learned that the best thing to do is take that day off so that, you know, the next day or the day after you're going to be right back to where you were. So so yeah. important to listen yeah, instead of overcooking yourself and just ruining the rest of the week oh exactly yeah and so what strategy did you have like the time trial in tokyo was a really hot day it then cooled down and and got very wet but it, for the time trial day what strategy did you use or strategies did you use in terms of just managing your body temperature for that race we did a lot of testing beforehand. So we did a lot of heat chamber work and as, and as hard as that was, it worked out really well because we were using slushies. So we had a slushy machine. And so before we went into the heat chamber, we would drink oh, half a liter of slushy to try and trick my brain to be cool in my inner. So it's thinking that I'm cooler than I am. I'd go into the chamber then and do a session. And I mean, by the end of the session, yes, some of my symptoms were worse, but they weren't mm. as bad as I thought they were going to be. And then coming out, it was then right into like putting ice around my neck, drinking more slushy, because I found that if I cooled myself mm. from the inside out, it really, really assisted. And ice vests, mm. everything that we could trial, we did. And it was quite funny because time trial day for us on the trike was only about 23 degrees when I went off. So here I had, you know, uh, it was still humid. It was about 80% humidity, but here I had trained mm. for 35 degrees and all of a sudden it was 23. So we actually didn't have to use any of those strategies that we had put in place, but at least we had them there in case we needed them. Mm -hmm. And can we focus a little bit about your nutrition? You said that you've got to manage your power to weight ratio in particular. Can you kind of give us an outline of what a typical day's food intake might look like for you? And uh, just 
kind of starting with first thing in the morning like how do you how do you eat on a typical training day I always eat something before training I never used to and Mm -hmm. when we I sat down with my nutritionist and we decided that you know I wanted to lose I wanted to drop seven kilos to be at race weight Mm -hmm. and I was I was sitting Mm -hmm. about 72 kilos and I wanted to be 65 for race weight and funny mm-hmm. enough, I used to always think that if I just didn't eat enough, if I just didn't eat a lot, then the weight was going to come off. But it never worked that way. And so Kylie got mm-hmm. me eating around my training. So it was just eating to train. So we set a goal of like 1,900 calories a day. But then looking at extra carbs on top of that if I had big training. And so I, I decided that I had to eat before I trained. If I'm going to eat around my training, I have to be fueled. So I always eat, even if I start my training, like some days I go out at 5 a.m. So I'll get up and I'll get up early and eat because I don't want it obviously sitting there 10 minutes before I go out. And every morning before training, I'll have some muesli with usually half a banana cut up on it yogurt on top of that with some strawberries and blueberries. And I usually throw a bit of cinnamon in there because I love cinnamon. So that's what I'll have. Mm. And I find that sits really well in my stomach for training and even racing. So what we did Mm -hmm. is because I wasn't racing in Tokyo till the afternoon, we decided I'd Mm -hmm. change my food around and eat something like a lunch, something in the morning, but have that breakfast, that muesli and yogurt right the hour before I was going to race because I know that that sits well and it gives me enough fuel and enough carbs to actually race. Mm-hmm. So that's what I do in the morning. Usually when I, if I have a really long ride, I'll take some, some food with me and that can be anything from little bars from the company that I get my energy bars from. And so I'll have that while I'm riding, mm-hmm. but I always have some electrolytes in my, um, in my water as well as I'm riding. But when I come back or if I stop, if I'm riding with a group and we stop, I'll always have, you know, either some toast with jam and a coffee mm-hmm. and then ride home. Or if I ride mm-hmm. right home, then I'll have something when I get home just to top up those carbs. Lunch, well, today, because I had a big ride this morning, I had some pasta for lunch. And then mm-hmm. dinner, depending on whether I've got a big training session the next day, if I don't have a huge training session the next morning, then at dinner, I'll just have some protein and some veggies or salad and really low on the carbs. If I have a huge training day the next day, then I'll throw in some carbs. Like it might be rice or a potato, something like that. And then just snacks in between. Usually have a try and get some protein in there plus some a little bit of carbs. And then if it's a gym, if I have a gym day, um, like on a like a Monday or Wednesday after gym, I always have at least 20 to 30 grams of protein after my gym session. So that's mm-hmm. either protein powder in a, in a shake that I make and take with me or a yep. protein bar. Yeah. Yep. And do you have any specific nutrition challenges that you face? Like, do you find that there's anything in particular? Have, have you ever had any issues with your iron levels or do you find that traveling is challenging in any way from a nutrition perspective? Not really. I have a few food allergies. So I guess when I'm traveling, because I'm allergic to mushrooms and I'm allergic to some seafood and it's mostly crustaceans or shellfish. So I try to make sure that 
you know, and that's, that only happened in when I turned like 50, which is really horrible because I love seafood. So I just have to be careful mm-hmm. about when, when we're traveling and if we're staying in a hotel and they're feeding us, it's always about checking to make sure that, you know, those allergens aren't within the food, like mushrooms, people use mushrooms so much for even, you know, gravy based sauces. So I have to be careful about that. But no, I mean, when I was diagnosed with MS, I read a lot about diet and there's, there's quite a few things out about what you should and shouldn't eat with MS to keep the inflammation, which is what it is that attacks your brain, to keep that down. Mm-hmm. Look, I tried so many things and it just mm-hmm. got to the point where I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to eat mm-hmm. that the way I know how to eat. And, you know, I knew that because I was, a, especially when I was an ath- started being an athlete again and, and training really mm-hmm. hard, there was some stuff they were saying not to eat that I really needed to eat because I needed to keep those carbohydrates up and that protein up. And yeah, so it's, yeah, I just kind of discounted all that and, and just dealt with my own nutritionist to, to work out what was best for me and not worry about the MS, so to speak, because I just find that the fitter that I can be and the better I deal with it. Mm. And what recommendations would you have for potential paracyclists and potential trike riders in terms of how do they get into the sport or any recommendations that you have for them you know when they're just first starting out oh find people that will support you you know i've i've put my hand up for you know helping a few people and trying to find people you know back ends to to make a trike and stuff like that but yeah it's australia you know is so great for having the support there, you know, you can, there's Mm -hmm. people can get in touch with me. People can get in touch with, um, Oz cycling. We now have a dedicated person that is looking at new paracyclists. So, you know, that's Nick Owen now. Mm -hmm. And so he's helped quite a few new riders this year, which is fantastic, you know, and, and if, if you feel like you have a disability and you feel like you might fit in somewhere, even if you don't know, just get in touch with us because, you know, we'll find the right people to look at, at the, the issues that you have and put you in whatever category you should be in. But yeah, it's very, uh, and I hate to put people off, but it's very hard to find a trike in Australia because most of the back ends have always come from overseas, but there is a company now that has built a full full frame trike and I believe they've done some back ends as well here in Melbourne. And so there's always a way, you know, to get onto a, a, a trike if if you need be and hand cycles, you know, for people who might not be able to use their legs at all or who are missing limbs and, you know, can't can't pedal. So there's always a way to do it and it's just yeah, get in touch with Oz Cycling. As for training, you know, just be passionate about what you want to do. And I've always said to people that I ride with, I don't ride to make a team and I don't train to make a team. I love training because I love the endorphins I get from it. I love the feeling of um, having a hard training session and, you know, doing well. And I love socially getting out with people and I'm passionate about riding. Mm -hmm. And I'm just lucky enough that because of that passion, then I make the team. 
So it's really important, you know, not to just try and make the team, but, but be passionate about going for a ride and the freedom it gives you um, yeah. as somebody with a disability, you know, freedom it gives you to get out and do things mm. with friends. Yeah. Did you ever try a hand cycle? No, I've never even sat in one, to be honest. I haven't tried a hand cycle. <laughs> yeah, maybe one day I will, but yeah, no, I haven't. I've always wanted to try. Yeah, I think, you know, that's the, that's the beauty of cycling is that there's lots of variety that, well, not lots of variety, but there's options, oh, isn't there? exactly. And funny enough, I, um, I've always wanted to try the tandem because I've always wanted to ride on the track. And with the trike, you just can't ride on the track because it, you'd, you'd fall over. But I, uh, I've always wanted to try mm. sitting on the back of a tandem, let somebody else balance me and see how it is. But that hasn't happened yet. So you never know. One day, one day I'll get it. Yeah. yeah. And what about any recommendations that you have for coaches or practitioners who may be working with para-athletes? Oh, that's a big one. Treat them like they're an athlete not that they're disabled because that athlete will tell you if there's something they can or can't do. I remember I was looking for a new coach and I was interviewing a couple of them and I met with one woman and the first thing she said to me was, "Ooh, I've never coached somebody who has a disability or rides a trike. And at that point, right then and there, I knew I didn't want her as a coach because I wanted her to coach me as an athlete, as a rider. Just because I'm riding something different and that I have a disability shouldn't mean that you coach me any differently. Yes, there are different things that you might do with the athlete and you will find that out as you move along your journey. I'm actually coaching a trike rider right now who lives in South Africa. So we do it virtually. And she's a T1 and extremely disabled. So, you know, what I would do as a trike rider is completely different than what I give her to do. So, you know, it's, it's about finding out what the athlete can actually do for themselves and, and basing your training and coaching around that athlete as an athlete, not as somebody riding something different. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Well, Carol, you've, you've certainly got a lot of history and, and a lot of things that you can contribute and it's really good to be able to have a chance to have a chat with you and find out a little bit more about you just to finish off though what's your favorite food oh man that's really hard because I've got a few um, <laughs> look I love pasta usually any kind of pasta but I love a really good steak as well so I'm lucky that my husband loves cooking for me so I don't do any cooking anymore. He does it all. And, and he's really good. He looks at the calendar and looks at, you know, what I've got to do the next day. And he bases food around that. So I've, I've got him trained well. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, his, his pastas are absolutely to die for. The one that I had today <laughs> for lunch was a brand new one he found online. And believe it or not, it's called Cheeseburger Casserole. I don't know why, because it's got, you know, peas and corn. It's like doing macaroni and cheese, but it's got beef in it and it's got carrot and celery and peas and corn. And it's got a bit of hot sauce in it and it's just lovely. So <laughs> it's a new one. <laughs> so yeah, any kind of pasta or, mm. or a good steak. Awesome. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, Carol, and we wish you all the best for this year's future events. And obviously, I guess we're, we'll look forward to potentially seeing you in Paris. Oh, I never think that far in advance. I think because no. of, of my age, I just think, okay, let's see how we go this year and we'll tackle next year. I think I've always really wanted to hang on till 2023 because it's mm-hmm. when they're going to have all of the disciplines at one world championships. And I think that's finally, you know, it, it's kind of inclusion at its best. And so I'm really excited to see that happen next year. And, and I've, I've waited for that for a couple of years. So if I can get there, then, uh, then I'll be happy and, and we'll see what happens after that. I think Carol's a great example of how you can turn what could have been a, a disastrous diagnosis into a positive and she's been able to keep pursuing her passion of being an athlete and finally finding the sport that really suits her and particularly finding new ways to improve her capability and challenge herself as the sport itself progresses and the number of competitors increases. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and that you'll share it with your social media. If you have any feedback, please don't hesitate to leave that on our website. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Claudia Jusbiak, who is a sports nutritionist and researcher in Brazil about low energy availability. 